It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. It is October 16th. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by patrons like Gary, Trent, Marlon, Nick, Lori, Catherine, Monica, Les, Mary, and Eric. Thanks so much for the support. I appreciate it. They became patrons to support the program, and you can as well. Just go to the PeteCallenerShow.com, click the link there, or check out the description of this podcast for all of the links as well. So with all of the focus on rising COVID-19 case numbers, it is important to know how the numbers are determined, right? And what if that data we are getting is actually misleading us to some extent? Um, First, though, I will tell you, I would never mislead you on the best mattress that you have to buy, okay? And I can tell you, I bought one. It's at Mattress Man, and it's a memory foam. Christy and I love it. And you should get your next mattress from Mattress Man. You can get a great deal right now on all sorts of mattresses, whether it's memory foam or inner spring. Uh, They've got all of the different types because people, they sleep in different positions. And so different mattresses better support different sleep styles, right? So like natural latex mattresses as well. They've got adjustable bases. Um, So you can elevate your feet for better circulation, elevate your head for uh, uh, for snoring abatement, but also for better TV watching. Uh, Manuel, listener to the show, uh, went about a month or so ago to Mattress Man. He bought one from the Hendersonville location. He said they provided outstanding service uh, at what I thought was a great price. Delivery and setup was done very professionally, as you mentioned on your podcast. They have five-star local delivery service. They ship nationwide. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. They have four stores uh, in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. Uh, They have zero down, zero APR for 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. Go to Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So we are now in our eighth month of the COVID-19 pandemic, and every week during this period, Governor Roy Cooper and his health secretary, Mandy Cohen, have held briefings. And the questions from reporters um, sound a lot like this one. I'm hoping you guys can elaborate on what might happen if the metrics continue into the future as they have been in the past few days. What measures is the state of North Carolina and the Department of Health planning if this continues the way it's been going? Thank you very much. All right. And the answers always sound like this. I'll let Dr. Cohen comment on this, but we will look at the metrics, uh, determine what might need to be done next uh, to make sure that we are trying to control this virus and to control the spread of it. I really believe that if people would take the responsibility to do the things we need to do, then we can take care of the spread of this virus. In addition, uh, the safeguards that we already have out there, if people abide by them, then we also can be successful in slowing the spread of this virus. I I want to echo the governor's sentiments is no one wants to move backwards, but I think you can imagine that if we needed to move backwards, we'd want to start with high 
activities that were at higher risk of spreading this virus. Um, and so that's what we would, would concentrate on it. Just like we used a, a dimmer switch and thought about um, uh, easing of restrictions, um, we look at some of those high-risk activities. Again, it's a matter of how many high-risk activities are we doing all at the same time. But I, I want to emphasize that we can get these trends under control. We know how to prevent the spread of this virus. We don't have to go backwards. Joining me now is John Sanders. He is the Director of Regulatory Studies and Research Editor at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work uh, at johnlocke.org. And John, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm great, Pete. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So you also, I need to ask you this too, Locker Room, is that, because you write a lot of stuff at The Locker Room, which is, right, that's the website, I guess, with the John Locke Foundation. Which would you prefer people go to? Because you're kind of all over the place. You post stuff everywhere. (laughs) Um, my more substantial pieces are at johnlock.org. If you scroll down and find the research briefs um, about halfway down the page, uh, that's where I post a lot of things. And then I'll either hit them up again in the locker room or sometimes I give them trial runs there. Gotcha. Those are the, the trial balloon room. Okay. Um, so you had a, you've, you've got a series called The Fog of COVID-19 Data in North Carolina. And uh, I'm going to kind of go through a couple of these pieces because it's multi-parts. And it goes back, I guess, how how long have you been writing about this uh, under this series? It's been a while. It's been several weeks, right? Well, it's been months, um, off and on. And uh, my colleagues, uh, Joe Clay and, and Don Vandervart, have also been writing about this. Um, I started really paying attention to the data shortly after COVID really started um, being being addressed in North Carolina. And I saw that the government response was one of the biggest threats, in my opinion, to individual liberty and the, uh, the direction of the state that I've ever seen. And so, I, it, like everybody, I was very concerned about, about the virus. But things as things progressed i got to be even more concerned about what the the lockdowns and shutdowns and then half shutdowns were doing to um business and and people in the state and for the administration they constantly cite the science and data and facts uh and so I think it's only right that we ask about the science and the data and I guess the facts, although I noticed they've, they've, they've dropped the facts part from that. Now it's just science and data. Um, so I guess it's important to look at the science and the data to see how they are making these decisions. And I've been critical. I think we've talked before about this is that they don't seem to have a lot of this stuff uh, out there for public consumption for us to trust, but verify. They don't allow us to verify. So you went back in September 20 uh, on September 21st you said that according to Roy Cooper's own metrics for reopening the state should already be reopened um all those metrics the covid like illnesses the cases the positive tests as a percentage of total tests and hospitalizations uh they've not only been tre- they had not only been trending down for weeks but were in fact months past their peaks so has that has that trend continued? And then tell us what changed in late uh, September, almost like uh, like a couple of days after you wrote this piece. <laughs> there was they yes. changed the data. Yeah, uh, the uh, the trends have have decidedly changed, um, except for COVID like illnesses. But I expect those to go up just because flu um, is sort of like a COVID like illness. But you know, we maybe get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that was on Monday, September 21st when I wrote that. And on Friday, September 25th, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the, um, the bureaucracy that provides the data, um, announced a major change. They were going to be adding in antigen tests, uh, which are a different class of testing. Um, and according to the way the government uses it, not, not just uh, North Carolina, but the federal government, they, um, if you test positive as an antigen test, you are considered a probable case. Uh, so they dumped in over 6,000 probable cases going back to May 10th. Um, but they announced it on one single day. And of course, everyone acted as if we had this major one-day boost in, in, in case numbers. And since then, they have split up the cases on their website between PCR, which is the, the testing that they have been doing, uh, the molecular uh, testing, um, and now the antigen. They make it extraordinarily difficult to get a list of cases per day as when they, the tests were, were collected. They give a te- an announcement, but the announced tests for that day that were positive could go back weeks and even months. And in fact, once a week now, I go through the data when I do the recoveries data. And this past week when I did the recoveries data, I had to go all the way back to April 26 to find the missing case. So hmm. that's how, I mean, the, the data are completely fluid. I can't trust a single day's work of, of data. I can't enter something into my spreadsheet and be, you know, double check it and then be happy to know that I don't have to worry about that entry ever again. Mm-hmm. I have to check every entry every time. So, and this is important because they, they, uh, the administration, and even when they did their latest news briefing on this, they always start out with talking about case numbers and they talk about, you know, and they did it the last one about how we've had our single highest day of cases. And, that might not actually be true, right? Because if the, I mean, just because the case got reported today doesn't mean that the case occurred today. It means that the case could have just been left over from a week ago, two weeks ago, or as you said, a month ago, three months ago. Yeah, I, unless I were to go through and and pinpoint each day and compare with yesterday's, which I have not done, um, I wouldn't be able to say when all of those cases t- took place. Hmm. Most of them, I suspect, will have been within the last two weeks. However, frequently, they will go back through September, August, July, June. Who knows? Yeah. So uh, do you know, what is the difference between antigen testing and PCR, which uh, I, I need to show off that I actually did this research, polymerase chain reaction tests. PCR tests. I have no idea what that means, but that's that's one of the kinds of tests that I guess the state is using a lot of. What are the antigen tests? So the antigen tests are really the the tests that you get at um, like when you when you go into the 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 doctor's office or whatever. That they're they're more of the immediate tests, and they test for proteins of the virus. Um, and and if you get a positive reading there, then it's considered a probable case. Um, the PCR tests are the tests that most people get and they are, they're done with cycles. Mm -hmm. So they take a sample and then they cycle it through, um, to find if there are, if there is straps, if, if there's viral RNA, 
And if you're sick, you're going to have a lot. Like if you're rich, you're going to have a lot of money and it won't take a lot to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a little bit of the virus, they each time they cycle it, it isolates what there is and the next cycle will double and the next cycle will double that. So if you have a little bit of money and you, you double it 16 times and then suddenly you have a lot, you have a lot of money. Well, if you take these tests and you double it and double it and double it until you get something readable, that's okay. Uh, but there is a critical mass point of cycles where you're no longer reading anything that's of any practical value as far as if you are actually sick at some point And the, uh, the scientific consensus for this based on over hundred studies is that that point is 30 cycles that uh, beyond which you're not really finding anything useful. It could be a scrap of old virus of something similar. Um, it could be, it's most likely dead. Um, so, and it's certainly not big enough to constitute an infection because an infection isn't just having presence of a single speck of virus. It's, it's the presence of a critical mass where you're actually sick. Uh, so again, the, the scientific consensus for these things is 30 cycles. Uh, the uh, CDC says any more than 33 and you're not finding anything of any use, of any value. Um, North Carolina uses 37. So we're doubling it another seven times beyond what, potentially another seven times beyond what, uh, what's even useful. And I say potentially because we don't know how many cycles. They don't report that to, the, to your doctor. So your doctor doesn't get that kind of information. Yeah, we found the virus in 15 cycles. Oh, well, he's sick. We found the virus in 36 cycles. Oh, well, you know, you know if you start feeling bad, maybe yeah. do something. No, that's completely hidden from people. And so this is not data that is collected, what, anywhere at any lab or at the state level at, at, at anywhere? Because I, I remember, like, then how do we know that the state lab is doing a 37-cycle PCR threshold? So the New York Times in August 29th wrote a big expose about this, um, sounding the alarm about overcycling these tests and, and basically producing a lot of false positives or... Un, um, irrelevant positives uh, because if you you test positive for a scrap of you know genetic rna of a dead virus it doesn't mean anything other than you may be terrified your family may be worried your your friends and co-maker co-workers may be worried and for themselves too and you may not be able to make any money for the next two weeks mm-hmm. so new york in according to the new york times article that you're talking about new york uses what 40 um cycles a or lot they of did. places use 40 a lot of testing services use 40 the according to the times uh the north north carolina state lab uses 37 so does this make it impossible to compare if they're using 40 and we're using 37 um but then if because like the comparison uh was done like if new york used a cycle threshold of 30 rather than 40 they found that 63 percent of their cases would not even be judged to be positive if massachusetts used a cycle threshold of 30 uh and not whatever they were at i think 40 um then they would have been like uh 85 to 90 percent of their positives would not be positive because it's just it's it's too granular you're go you're you're going too deep to find this stuff and 
Uh, and so I wonder, is it even possible to be comparing case numbers between states at this point? Because we don't even know whose data are, you're comparing it to if it's if it's a higher cycle threshold or a lower one. You're not really comparing apples and apples any longer, are you? No, and that's one of the reasons why we have this series we call the fog of COVID data, because there are so many things that you would think that we would know, and we don't. But if we don't even know how many cycles it took to get a positive test, um, we can't say that your positive test is, is the same as somebody else's positive test. I mean, somebody else may be really sick, but you could be asymptomatic. And this also explains why there's so many asymptomatic people who have tested positive or why sometimes they we hear about, well, they've tested positive and now they've got the virus again. Hmm. Or, you know, maybe they only got it the second time or maybe both of those were false positives. Who knows? It also raises these questions now around outbreaks that occur. If um, if they're saying, oh, we you know, we, we've got an outbreak at some you know school or something, for example. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that you're running these PCRs of 37 plus cycles and now um, you're just picking up these remnants, these traces and scraps uh, in, in the in people's system that that doesn't actually mean they're infected because you you write about this as well in in the um another piece called uh Cooper administration is vague on cases hospitalizations and deaths where you say that um part of the problem uh, is that when they talk about cases for example in in regular conversation normal people when you say a case we think oh you're sick that's what that means right and that's not what it means cases don't mean you're sick right yeah, they don't necessarily mean that you're sick. They mean you have you have a positive laboratory test for COVID nineteen. But as as we've been discussing, a positive test doesn't maybe not actually mean that you have an actual infection. More with John Sanders in a minute. First, the Husqvarna Fall Sale at General Equipment Rental now through October 31st. You want to take advantage of huge savings on gas-powered and battery-powered equipment? Head on over to their website, generalrents.com, and check out all of the inventory. Okay, they got lawnmowers, chainsaws, trimmers, and blowers. I was looking at the Husqvarna Auto Mower. It's like a Roomba for your yard. For real, the technology is amazing. They've got a great deal on riding mowers, also stand-on mowers. Husqvarna actually just raised the price on these things like $1,000, but General Equipment Rental is keeping the old price. Get a great deal. If you're a professional landscaper, now's your opportunity. Go get you one of these new stand-on mowers. Go to generalrents.com, get pre-qualified for 0% APR for 48 months. You can also learn about commercial fleet discounts. Whatever the project General Equipment Rental has the tool that you need. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. Dr. John Sanders from the John Locke Foundation. We're talking about these PCR tests. And uh, hang on. Uh, the reason it's, it has something to do, I actually did a little bit of research. It's like a uh, the uh, it, it detects a positive reaction by accumulation of a fluorescent signal. And then... Certain things come up, so the more cycles you run, the more stuff gets brought to light through these cycles. It's it's pretty crazy. I don't believe I understand any of it. Um, but it just it seems to me it, it seems logical that the more you go looking for something, obviously you know the the deeper you dive, the more likely you are to find something. And if somebody had it and then never felt symptomatic at all, or maybe they had a cold and it was a couple months ago or something, or maybe it looks a lot like some other remnant of some other kind of virus. I don't know. Um, 
it just seems like when we talk about cases, people think that it means uh, a lot of people are sick. And I also noticed that I think this was the uh, the Rhino Times did a story on this the other day. Nobody cares about the numbers that have recovered. There were when we passed two hundred thousand people infected, everybody was like, "Oh, we passed two hundred thousand. I'm sure we'll see all the stories when we pass a quarter million." Um, and nobody cared that we passed two hundred thousand recovered, like a few days after the big announcement that we passed two hundred thousand sick. <laughs> right, right. No, no, it's very, very frustrating. And that's part of the problem. Is um, so the, the test is really a yes no answer, and it's yes no. Do you have any you know detectable virus RNA? It doesn't give you whether it's live RNA, um, and it doesn't let you know how much you've got, and it doesn't even tell you how many cycles you've had. So it it gives you a case, um, and that's it. It doesn't tell you if you're sick, how sick you are anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's the test itself is not really the problem. It's, it's the cycle threshold. Right. Well, and, and, and and the, the transparency of the data, who's what labs are, you know, doing the tests and what are their thresholds and does there need to be a uniformity, uh, a standard to those thresholds across all labs at least in our state. Like, can we dictate that? Can DHHS dictate that to the labs in our state? I imagine they could. They told everybody to go out of business. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they can. Um, it also, this also, you mentioned this earlier. So we're talking about sort of the vocabulary. So what is a COVID-like illness? You mentioned this earlier. So let's circle back to that. What is a COVID-like illness? And why does that matter? So COVID-like illness is based on the uh, the influenza-like illness that CDC already tracks. So it, it's very similar. It's based on, on those things. And and basically, it looks like at emergency room visits for people with fever and coughing or shortness of breath or heart palpitations um, or a COVID diagnosis. But any one of those, because it's an or, any one of those things would register. Well, as you can imagine, fever and coughing, I mean, we just entered cold and flu season. So I, it's something I worry about that because the governor has, has made one of his metrics for maybe reinstating a lot of restrictions on people as if our COVID-like illnesses go up. Well, I expect our COVID-like illnesses go up to go up because we're entering cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just checked it this afternoon. Uh, they are still trending downward through you know, today. Um, I went to the CDC website and looked at North Carolina's numbers. So the trend is still downward. Um, but like I said, I'm expecting it to go back up just because we're in that time of year. Yeah. Um, hospitalizations. So when I see this metric that the governor uses, I think, oh, well, that means somebody got hospitalized for COVID. They're so sick from COVID, they got to go to the hospital. Is that what that data point means? Yeah, a regular conversation. That's what you would think it would mean. Um, but what it means is they are in the hospital and they have had a positive COVID test. Um, but that doesn't mean that COVID put them in the hospital. They could be in the hospital for another reason they could have had a car wreck they could be there for uh, heart palpitations 
Um, they could be there for a routine um, inpatient surgery or, or medical procedure. Um, as part of the clinical diagnosis, when they come in, they're going to be tested for COVID. And from, from this vantage point, I have no idea how many are there because of the virus and how many are there and have tested with the virus. Right. So you're not, you're not making any kind of uh, assertions that the numbers are being inflated or deflated or anything. You, you literally don't know enough to even begin to make that assessment. Well, I think that the numbers are inflated apparently to um, according to what normal people would think of as a hospitalization. Mm -hmm. Um, But inflation by 1%, 5%, 10%, I have no idea. Um, In your piece, you also mentioned the media. And uh, I don't think, and this is one of the, this is one of my enduring frustrations. Uh, And and look, this isn't anything new. And I know people, uh, particularly reporters, uh, think that I bash media all the time. And I probably do uh, a fair amount of that. Um, because it is such a frustration for me, and it is nothing new that media hypes bad news. This has been my entire life. It's a running joke. I used to say it. This was 20 years ago. Uh, I would joke with people, you know, if uh, we're media, if you're not afraid, I'm not doing my job. Like, that's always been what media does. And uh, now we see, like, the real downside here is that you've got people so very afraid of uh of covid that it is debilitating to a lot of people and it i I think it's caused i think people have had i think a lot of people it has done damage to their psyches like people that were previously i thought rational and logical they now attack me because i ask questions whereas they used to say oh we love you Pete, because you're asking the tough questions now i ask questions and they're like why do you want to kill everybody from covid and uh, they've just it's just a detachment. And I do blame media. I blame our elected officials as well. But I do blame media for that kind of hype and and their lack of skepticism when it comes to questioning uh, the governor and the secretary of health and human services. And we saw it again in the last press conference, you know, on the mask issue. Um, so do you even watch the press conferences any longer because of this? I generally do not watch the press conferences. I, I like to read the transcript afterward. If they are going to be announcing an executive order, I sit there and refresh the page until the executive order shows up, uh, which is usually a couple of minutes right before the press conference starts, so that I can start reading what the actual order is and not have to listen to the, the, <laughs> the you know, rigmarole. Right. <laughs> well, I, well, you're smarter than I am, apparently, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I watch... I watch the whole thing and I record it and I live tweet at the same time. And it's like, I get to the, I don't, I don't even care what they're saying anymore because it's the same thing every single week, twice a week. They say the same things. Um, I, I'm talking with John Sanders. He is the uh, research editor and director of regulatory studies at the John Locke foundation. Now uh, you've heard me talking for years about Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, how they will get your house sold quickly and for more money, how Christy and I, Christy and I are using Rowena and her team to buy our house as well. And one of the downsides here, as I found out yesterday, is that uh, one of our friends, listeners of the program, they're moving. They're using Rowena Patton, which I'm very thankful for. But on the other hand, 
They're moving, and I'm not going to be able to hang out with them anymore. So it's kind of bittersweet. It's sad, but also glad that Rowena can help them in their next chapter in life. Let her help you. Uh, she will get your house sold quickly, and for more money, she outsells 99% of the realtors in the state of North Carolina. Give her a call, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about masks, shall we? Um this got some coverage uh, because Dan Forrest at the gubernatorial debate the other night said that, um, you know, he doesn't believe masks work. He said the CDC and uh, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, that they've all said that the masks don't work. And Roy Cooper, uh, you know, uh, his eyes about fell out of his head. How dare you? You're reckless and dangerous. And uh, at the press briefing, Mandy Cohen was saying it's, you know, masks do work. And look, I'm of the opinion on masks that if they do, um, if they are at least at some level beneficial, I don't mind wearing them, right? Like if, and, and to me it makes sense because like the different kinds of lung juice that gets expelled when people talk, right? You got the ballistic kind that like big, <laughs> big chunks that come out, but then you also have the micro droplets that kind of linger in the air. And it makes sense to me that a mask would stop the ballistic stuff, you know? If I'm spitting everywhere <laughs> when I'm talking uh, and anybody who's worked in radio knows what a microphone looks like if it's not cleaned. So um, if, you, if you're spitting everywhere, it makes sense that a, a mask would block some of that stuff. But if this is aerosolized and it's spreading through the mask, that mask isn't catching everything. And then it becomes a question of benefits versus cost. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Do the masks actually work? And now it's become political as well. It's really sad, I think, that it's so politicized. And even asking if masks work gets me branded, even though I wear a mask. <laughs> I wear one and I still get branded. Um, so uh, you wrote a piece about this uh, a while ago. Masks on healthy people. Uh, what are the benefits? What are the harms? And you actually referenced the World Health Organization. I think this was back in June. But um do you trust the World Health Organization to offer this kind of guidance, I should say, first? Well, what the World Health Organization put out there was pretty good guidance because uh, first it went through the existing studies on masks uh, as it related to, to COVID. Um, it laid out rationales for, for leaders of, of states, um, of nation states, to... Uh, about whether or not they should recommend masks. And I thought it was interesting that throughout that, that thing, it was really about recommending. I didn't see anything there about mandating it. Mm -hmm. um, so I can give the top line here from the World Health Organization. This was The timing of this is also interesting, right? Because this was issued, if I got my timeline right, before the Cooper administration did yes. its mask mandate, right? Yes. Okay. So it says, at present time, the widespread use of masks by healthy people in the community setting is not yet supported by high quality or direct scientific evidence, and there are potential benefits and harms to consider. Um, you then do a translation from World Health Organization bureaucratic uh, jargon into everyday plain spoken English. Um, where there are you, you mentioned and they do as well that there are some benefits that you can lower the risk of catching the virus from an infected person, which is kind of what I was talking about before. You could make people sick um, or their caretakers sick uh, who have to wear masks um, and you can make them feel weird about it. So there and that is part of this, too. Like you're aware, right? Like there's a whole 
peer pressure sort of herd thing going on <laughs> right <laughs> with right. masks no yeah they had the one about they had the benefit was to your own health yeah um not to anybody else's health right and then the rest of it were pretty much psychological or you know community boosting you can make money by by you know selling your own <laughs> masks and yeah that's what the world health organization is recommending which hey free market capitalists i'm fine with that but but i don't know is the world health organization the group that should be recommending that to me i don't know right uh but that was not the only research i went into and this is research that evaluated the the issue of asymptomatic trans um transmission which the governor talked about it today um saying that you know, when you wear a mask, you're protecting the world. This is actual right. quote today because I wrote it down on Twitter because I thought it was one of the dumbest things I've heard in the last, I don't know, two days. I, I have to limit it because the the yeah. amount of idiocy flying out of Raleigh is, is coming at such a fast pace that I can't keep up with it. Anyway, um, yeah, so the idea is that you could be sick and not know it, and therefore you're a su- potential super spreader. Um I'm sure your your listeners have, have encountered this idea somewhere because I, I see it everywhere. It, it's absolute fatuous nonsense. It is not scientific at all. Uh, the science that went looking into asymptomatic transmission basically found that, yeah, okay, it's conceivable, but we can't really say we can find it happening. And any of the cases that they were able to find it happening were among families where people were living together in close contact for days and weeks, not from chance encounters or walking by someone out on the sidewalk or someone walks by your table while you're sitting down at the restaurant where you're finally allowed to take the mask off and and eat and drink because we haven't figured out how to make a mask that you can eat through. (laughs) That's coming. (laughs) Well, the World Health Organization says you could make money if you develop such a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in, in that sense, I went through, I, I think it was seven different studies um, on that, the issue of asymptomatic transmission. And no, that's not happening. It, and if it is, it's, it's so extremely rare. Uh, it involves lots, lots of extenu- extenuating circumstances, such as being around someone who's extremely vir- viral, um, who's extremely uh, who, who you are in close contact with for a long time? Mm-hmm. And this was look at the very beginning of all this. I believe that I trusted that assessment. They said it's a nobody knows if they have it. People are spreading it asymptomatically, and so stay home, wear a mask, and I abided all of that. Um, but this is again one of my other frustrations is we have to be able to adapt to new information when it becomes available. If we're not going to do that, then what are we actually doing, right? So what you're telling me, and he and Cooper was asked about this too at the briefing. Um, uh, that you know, do you regret any of the the previous decisions? It was framed like, okay, you opened up stuff. Did you make a mistake? And of course, they said no. Everything we've done has been perfect, and that's the problem. You can't tell me that anybody across the world in their response has has gotten it exactly right in every area nobody has and so if you can't even acknowledge that okay we made a mistake on this portion or this response or this protocol let's adapt and let's let's change that up if you can't even say that now 7 months in then i have serious questions about the entire regime that you are 
uh, putting upon people. Because if you can't adapt and you can't change uh, some of these protocols when you know stuff doesn't work, um, then it means like what what else are you keeping in place for other reasons? Uh, and, and at that point, it becomes a political calculation. I, I see no other way around that. You know, you make a really good point about being able to adapt and uh, as as our understanding of the virus changes. And I, my wife and I noticed a really good example of that when we were grocery shopping this weekend. You know, we went to two different grocery stores, and they're no longer wiping down the carts before they hand it to you before <laughs> yeah. you cart. Yeah, I've noticed that um, too. I think they're just lazy. I thought they were just being lazy, though. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, we now understand that this is not contact-based. You're not. You're really not getting the virus by touching something and then touching your mouth. That's. Uh, we understand now that it's airborne. Uh, but because we understand it's airborne, at some point in time, we've got to drop the mask because the the viral particles are so small that normal cloth masks or even these these medical masks uh, aren't catching it. But a cloth mask is like trying to stop a mosquito with it with a chain link fence. It's just not going it's going to stop it. Hmm. John Sanders with the John Locke Foundation. More with him in a minute. First, you know the cold weather is here. It's coming if it isn't already here. Uh, And that means you need some good outdoor gear and clothing. And that means Old Grouch's military surplus. For a lot cheaper than you're going to find in most outdoor stores, you can pick up military-grade thermal underwear in all sizes, uh, wool sweaters, military field jackets, and camouflage and solid green, wool and fleece toboggans, wool socks, Gore-Tex jackets. He's got military-grade backpacks. Uh, For the kids, they're going to last a lot longer than the cheap ones from the big box stores. Also, ammo cans, all kinds, all sizes. These are great for storage, not just for ammo, but for tools as well. Uh, You can get creative with this stuff. Use it for dry storage, for rifles, fishing gear in your garage or your shed. Go check them out at oldgrouch.com or walk on into the store. It's on Main Street in downtown Clyde. They're open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. That's Old Grouch's Military Surplus oldgrouch.com this kind of leads to this next piece that you mentioned you wrote up uh at johnlock.org um but it first appeared in the north state journal as a piece by dr s stanley young uh and uh, the headline is covid19 are masks really helpful and look i understand by the way that simply us discussing this is going to trigger outrage Right there, there, there will be people. I've already had it happen where, like, you know, I had a guy who, who was a longtime listener. And he's like, "Screw you, Pete. You're an idiot. I feel stupid forever supporting you ever because of you know you're dangerous and you're telling you're spreading this stuff. Th- that's what we risk by even discussing this. But this guy, he says, I did a, a meta analysis. He's a statistician. Um, I got his credentials here. Um, oh, he's highly credentialed. Yeah, PhD in applied st- uh, an, an applied statistician, a fellow at the American Statistical Association, uh, and AAAS, and director of the Shifting Sands Project with the National Association of Scholars, and he currently serves on the EPA's Scientific Advisory Board. I think he's qualified. <laughs> right. He says uh, he says that um, he did a meta analysis of. All these studies, which is basically what a study of all the studies, right? You look at all of this stuff, you put them all together, say, okay, what does it tell us? And his big takeaway is that these, um, what does he call RCT, randomized clinical trials, it says that the use of face masks either by infected people 
or by uninfected people does not have a substantial effect on influenza transmission. Why is that relevant to COVID? Well, yeah, that's because COVID is a virus very much like influenza. And I'm not saying it's the exact same impact on people. Right. But what I mean is it's, you know, it should work like, like influenza. Um, what we've been told since really it started about somewhere in April where suddenly the science changed and um, they went from saying, yeah, masks are, are not helpful. And in fact, they're more dangerous, and more harm than good if you don't know how to use a mask properly. Then they started telling you strap any Anything on your face, it's good for your family, it's good for your friends, and then we can get back to sports. Uh, so, yeah, so he went through the studies on influenza, and he, and he brought them to DHHS, and he says, why is this different? Please give me your science on the masks um, that, that explains why we're doing this, because if, if behaving the way that influenza does, then masks are absolutely useless. Um, and he pestered them and eventually he heard back and they gave him their, their science and their science was a meta meta analysis of 19 studies. Uh, the effect of which was that medical masks are not effective and cloth masks are even less effective. That was from the DHHS. The, the ones who issued the mask mandate and are telling us to wear the masks, their own meta analysis shows that the masks are not effective. Right. I, I wonder if they just saw that and thought, oh, 19 studies, and, you know, this will shut them up. <laughs> so, and he asks this question, too, so I'll ask you, <clears throat> so why do they say to wear the masks? So the DHHS now has a new public information campaign, um, Get Behind the Mask. And I went to the website, I went through all of the materials. I downloaded every last thing on there and looked through all of it. There's not one scrap of science. It's all basically wear the mask if you love your family. Wear the mask if you love your friends, if you love your community. But nothing that says wear the mask because it's been scientifically proven that it actually works. There's no science at all. It's, It's basically just, you know, do what we say pretty please but then why why like what is the purpose uh, and i know i'm asking you and you i'm i don't know you don't know you'd be speculating i guess do you care to speculate <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't right. i wouldn't have any good speculation okay um, i'm afraid it would all be political right well and that's but that's where i go too and maybe that's just my bias but maybe it's because i don't know the people that are doing it are political right there there is a political benefit uh, to them, when they're telling us that the mask mandate worked, and then you look at the the number of cases going up after the mandate, <laughs> and they keep going up, and now they and then they went down a little bit, and then they're going up again. So if the mask mandate worked, then why are we still seeing cases? Why you've done enough research on this? Every, you, know, you look at all these different states when they implement the mask mandate, and it doesn't lead to the these precipitous drops that you would you would think would follow a mandate that supposedly works. So I have questions like, how do we know this is actually working? Um, And maybe this is why, and this is sort of the final piece I wanted to get to with you with the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, is So first off, what is this, the Great Barrington Declaration? Uh, Dan Forrest mentioned this in the gubernatorial debate, and he mentioned something connected to the masks. Do they cover masks in this? Uh, Do they talk about lockdowns? What exactly, and who are these people? Uh, They do not 
talk about the masks. They talk about lockdowns. Uh, and these people that are behind the Great Barrington Declaration, they are three of the top health experts in the world. Uh, Harvard professor of medicine, Dr. Martin Kulldorff, Oxford University epidemiologist, Dr. Sunetra Gupta. I'm hoping I'm not messing anybody's name up. Uh, Stanford University medical school professor, Dr. Be- J. Bhattacharya. Good and job. I may have dangled. <laughs> I think you got close. I think that <laughs> no, might be it. Uh, so they have grown increasingly alarmed by the other health effects of lockdowns. I mean, we, we instituted the lockdowns originally to, to um, stop the spread and, and flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. And what flatten the curve originally meant was so that hospitals weren't overwhelmed when we had the massive viral spike. Of, of infections, um, you know, so if we spread the curve out, because everyone, you know, people are going to get sick, people are going to contract the virus. We understood this back in March, um, un- up and until there, there is herd immunity or a vaccine. So the society's response was to at least spread it out. So our hospitals weren't overwhelmed. That went away starting around May we stopped worrying about that. And then we acted as if the role of public policy was to prevent people from ever getting sick. And that's just impossible. Uh, so that, and that's the, that's the problem with the lockdown. So these experts have gotten tens of thousands of medical and scientific professionals, health practitioners to sign on as well as hundreds of thousands of others. And they are going to read one of the paragraphs. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage while the underprivileged disproportionately are being harmed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they, they are making the case that, look, what we're doing, and, and we've seen this being reported elsewhere, that uh, hospitals saw fewer heart, heart attack patients um, during, during the past few months. Not because we've suddenly solved heart attacks, but because people are afraid to get out and go to the doctor. Uh, we've seen fewer cancer screenings because hospitals for a while weren't seeing anybody um, for, for routine screenings uh, until just, you know, after the first few months of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, the deteriorating mental health is, is a real problem, especially for younger adults. There, were, there was research recently showing that uh, I think one out of four uh, people of college age were had serious thoughts of suicide in the past 30 days. Not just they thought about it, but, you know, they actually considered it. And they were also dealing with substance abuse and, um, and anxiety disorders. We're seeing greater uh, incidences of all of these things cropping up, especially among the young. Hmm. Uh, and they're the ones who are the least affected by the virus. Uh, so it, it's... it's dangerous in two different ways. 
Right. This And it goes back to, I think, something we talked about at the very onset of the pandemic, which was it's not an argument about dollars versus lives. It's an argument about lives versus lives. And um, it yes, seems very like well put. Yeah. And there's a yeah, there's and there's one group that seems to be getting all the deference while the other is carrying a lot of the burden. Um John Sanders, the Director of Regulatory Studies and Research Editor at the John Locke Foundation. Anything else you want to add here before we let you go? I've kept you very long. Well, I would just say, you know, when we talked about about the fog of COVID data, when we, when we discussed the, uh, the uncertainty over when is a case a case, the reason why this is a big deal is, you know, otherwise, I mean, this might be just an academic exercise, you know, it would be better if we had better information. But the reason it's a big deal is because the government, the, the governor is is predicating his restrictions against people based on these numbers. Um, he's also basing it on test percent positive, and that's not what those were used for. Uh, the uh, The rationale behind our test returning positive and wanting it to be, you know, 5%, it's not because it means that the virus is petering out. It's a measure. It's a measure of how much we're testing. Mm-hmm. If we're getting five percent of of positives, it means that we're finally testing enough people. Otherwise, we're only testing the sick, and we're not testing enough uh, of other people to uh, to find out. So it's that is something. It's a measure that the Cooper administration has kind of perverted for their own use. Um, it was never intended as a guide for when when the virus is petering out and it's safe to open again. It was always a test for are we testing enough people that we should only be seeing about 5%. If we're only testing the sick, then, of course, the measure is going to be much higher than 5% positive. Right. That That's logical. <laughs> that makes sense. So, of course, it shall be discarded in uh, these uncertain times. Uh John Sanders from the John Locke Foundation. Always good to talk with you, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Pete. It's always a pleasure. All right. You know how important your website is. Maybe you're seeing customers, though, that don't follow through on the purchase. Maybe you're seeing people, they come to the website, you get a lot of traffic, but they're not following through on the purchase. Why not? It might be design. They may not be able to figure out and navigate to find what they need to find. Great design can actually solve a lot of websites' problems. And Schaefer Smith Design can help you with your design, okay? SchaeferSmith.com. You know your business. Schaefer Smith knows website design and maintenance. Uh, go to the website, SchaeferSmith.com. Take a look at what he can do for you. Professional services, corporate, small businesses, entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics and photos and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. Uh, he'll custom tailor uh, to your needs. What do you need for your website? And then he will help you achieve that. Okay. He even does logos. He did mine. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So one other point here on the Great Barrington Declaration um, that uh, John Sanders was referencing. Uh, here is what they uh, here's the conclusion that these uh, uh, experts reach. Quote, those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. 
Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. Um, one other thing. Uh, the doctor who wrote the piece at North State Journal, uh, Dr. Uh, S. Stanley Young, he says uh, that masks have always been thought to stop large droplets. Transmission through very fine droplets cannot be stopped by ordinary masks. Most recently, the CDC has confirmed that the virus can be transmitted through fine droplets, uh, or as I like to call them, lung juice. The meta-analysis that the DHHS in North Carolina sent me supports this claim because, again, it showed no benefit to wearing masks. Incidentally, the Netherlands recently dropped the mask mandate, saying the research did not support wearing them. So why does Dr. Cohen insist that we wear masks? I think that is a really fair question. Maybe some media folks, if they can figure out what the cycle threshold data point is, and they can figure out what a PCR test is, and they can marry those two data points together, maybe it might prompt a question or two about why we're running cycle threshold tests at um, uh, PCRs at 37 and not 30. And what would that do to the case counts? Are we being misled, either intentionally or accidentally? Are we being misled on the case counts? The more you look for something like this, the more you're going to find it. But when you're finding stray pieces of it, and then you're locking people down because of the stray remnant pieces in the RNA, is that really uh, effective public policy? Well, I guess it depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? And maybe that's a nice follow-up question that some of the selected media outlets would be allowed to ask. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews. I appreciate that. And consider becoming a patron of the program. You get cool stuff, exclusive content. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. And uh, thanks a lot for the support. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. We'll talk with you later. And don't break anything while I'm gone. 